I'm sure you've all had an experience where you're chatting with someone and they start sharing a story with you. But the story continues and continues. And 15 minutes later, when you're 10 that's crazies in and 20 interestings in response to the conversation, the person then has the cheek to say, long story short, and then give a summary of what they've just told you. Well, we have an actual long story short in our text today, Uh, really a recapitulation, which means a retelling of Israel's history and the church's future, all in the space of a few short verses. Uh, John, in this uh, vision, recasts for us Genesis 3.15, God's promise in the seed of the gospel, which we'll talk about today, showing how it's going to play out throughout history. This is the meta-narrative of Scripture. In Genesis 3, the woman is Eve, right? But we are also introduced to the serpent, the seed of Eve, who is going to crush the serpent's head, even though he will bruise his heel. Well, this story, and it's a long story short, is going to take us all the way from that promise through to the return of Christ, in fact. Now, what we're going to see is something unexpected. A baby, the most vulnerable of beings, seemingly is going to actually slay this giant beast, this giant dragon. Yes, the newborn baby was the serpent's planned dinner, and Satan is powerful, And does seem to get the upper hand in many ways. But the comfort of this text is that the the dragon is given a mortal wound. And so the book of Revelation is an encouragement for us, the church. Of course, some people have bad experiences with (laughs) preaching on the book of Revelation. It can seem quite scary and confusing. Part of what makes that the case is there's uh, pictorial language all over the place, and we seem to flip between scenes in heaven and scenes on earth. But ultimately, the book is a book for us today. It's a book for the church in future as well. But it's not only a book for the church in the future, it's a book for us today. It's a window into the enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman, and an encouragement to us as we await Christ's return. So firstly, John sees a a great sign appearing in heaven. Now, we can read this more as perhaps sky uh, than than heaven, but because what what he is seeing is really a picture of what's taking place on earth. So a great sign appears in the heavens. Now, this sign is not so much a picture or an event, but actually a person, a lady, a woman. And this woman is clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet, and she has a crown over her head composed of 12 stars. Now, some have suggested throughout history a couple of different interpretations of who this woman is. Who is this woman? Well, we may think... What about Eve, given the reference that we talked about to Genesis? Or what about, quite obviously, Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, the Messiah? But also, what about Israel? 
the one who was, from whom was expected to come the Messiah. And there's lots of birth language which we'll talk about in the, in the Old Testament. And some have even suggested that it is talking about God and his, his plan for redemption. Now, quite obviously, there's a, a literal sense that Mary did give birth to the Lord Jesus. But really, it's more that Mary is a bit like Israel. Israel's history is that she's the one chosen by God to bring forth the Messiah. So really, in part, what John is seeing here is a vision about Israel. And that, then that metaphor gets deployed to apply to us as the church as well. Let's have a look at those descriptions that will help us understand that. So she's clothed with the sun. And this borrows from language from Psalm 104. Uh, the, the woman who is clothed, Israel, being clothed with splendor and majesty. So this woman is radiant. And the way we can interpret that is she is in glorious array, but what is her glory? Well, it's the clothing of Christ's righteousness. What makes Israel and the church glorious is the righteousness that's counted to it uh, through faith. She also has the moon under her feet. Now, that is a, a kind of language that comes from a Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 10. Let's read that verse for you. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Now, we've mentioned this before, but Song of Songs is not an allegory about Christ, Okay, it is love poetry. Um, it's not primarily about Christ and the church. That would be the wrong way to read it. But here the language is borrowed from Song of Songs to indicate how God sees the church because of Christ. Because she's arrayed in Christ's glory, she is beautiful. So the bride in reference here is Israel and the church. Not a king, but a co-reigning queen. And here we also then see a crown of 12 stars. Now, this language should be familiar from uh, our series through Genesis. In chapter 37, Joseph had a dream where his brothers, 11 stars, were bowing down to him as the sun and the moon. What's represented here is the 12 tribes of Israel, the completeness of Israel represented by this woman. So all of this is to say is that this is basically a picture of Israel, the history of Israel up to the birth of Christ in the war between the serpent and the one who would give birth to a savior who would crush his head. So in, in verse 2, we see the, that she is crying out in birth pains. She's pregnant, so she's about to give birth, and she's actually experiencing the birthing pains and the agony of giving birth. Uh, Jesus was born into a tension, this tension, that had existed since the garden. See, Israel's whole history was pregnant with messianic hope, but yet there'd been no delivery. The pain is symbolic sufferings of exile. At the hands of God's enemies, as Israel continues in its cycles of sin, disobedience, exile, repentance, restoration, and so on. 
Uh, the image of a woman in the pains of labor occurs multiple times in the Old Testament, uh, most notably Isaiah, 6, uh, Isaiah 26. I should read that uh, two verses for you, 17 to 18. As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We would not have given birth to the people of the world. In that sense, the old Israel could not actually bring about the Messiah. The labor seemed stalled. There were birthing pains, exiles, and sufferings, but nothing seemed to happen. So that's a historical drama for the people hearing this text that they're well aware of. That's the history of their people. And so they're having this repeated to them now in the language that John uses. And as the early church receiving this, for them, there's a, a continuity between Israel and themselves as heirs of the promise of the Messiah, uh, the church being the true Israel, ultimately. And so they understand that what's in reference here is the actual birth of their Messiah, Jesus. Now, initially, they understand that this woman is Israel, but that it applies to them as well. Because later in Revelation chapter 12, it's clear that the, the woman is in fact also the church who is going to be persecuted for her faith. So we, like the early Christians, can situate ourselves here too. This applies to us. We are righteous and precious to God, like the woman giving birth, but also suffering, crying and awaiting for a deliverance. Well, then John sees a second sign in the skies, a giant, red, fiery red, scary dragon that he sees. Now, this is Satan. If, well, we are going to see uh, in the next sermon series uh, through Exodus that Pharaoh is like a dragon, an evil power that is uh, trying to destroy God's people. And that's how the prophet Ezekiel will ultimately interpret it. He will call Pharaoh a dragon. And there's a great deal in, of signs and symbols in the book of Revelation that make us think of Exodus and, the, and Pharaoh as this dragon keeping God's people in bondage and slavery. There's also other passages all over the Old Testament talking about the dragon and his association with evil beings from Job, Psalm 74, Isaiah 27, and so on. So plainly, the dragon is meant to bring associations with a powerful evil being. Uh, it's not clear exactly why the color of the dragon is red, and this is a fiery red, by the way, in the same way that the fiery red shields of the invading armies in Assyria and Nahum are meant to terrify, put terror, terror into the people. The point is, it's a frightening beast. And he has seven heads, seven crowns, and ten horns. So what, are, what do these things mean? Well, horns are a symbol of power. As uh, we see in the book of Daniel, uh, here's a 
citation from that. The beast had ten horns, ten crowns on ten horns, and blasphemous names on his heads. So these are clearly symbols of great power, and Satan does have great power. He's trying to, by having these uh, horns, show that he is unable to be defeated. There's a great number of these horns. Similarly, he has crowns. Now, these kind of crowns are actually a, a diadem, a kind of tiara, not in the uh, feminine sense that we use tiara, but really a Persian uh, woven uh, crown that is a symbol of royal power. So you can translate this as kind of a royal headband. So John here is seeing Satan pictured as an immensely powerful beast, godlike. Right, exercising great power and sovereignty. He has multiple heads because a bit like Hydra, it doesn't matter if you stop part of his evil schemes. The beast still lives. And just as you cut off one, another grows back. We can see that in the cycles of Israel's history. As one of their enemies was cut, cut off, so another pops up against them. The Satan is cast as this beast that's seemingly undefeatable. And that leads us to what's actually a conflict in verse 4. A great conflict. The, the dragon's powerful tail now whips backwards uh, and pulls a third of the stars out of the, out of the heavens and, and throws them, casts them down to earth. So people have um, thought that this is a reference to fallen angels. So the... The demons being cast down uh, to earth, that's common, commonly held view. So if that's true, this is actually a reference to something that happens before in the process of creation, that Satan takes a third of the angels out of heaven in rebellion to show the power of his lies, his persuasive demonic forces. So the point is Satan has always been anti-God. And this is now what we see a preliminary, uh, upfront uh, display of his power. But his main interest is not bringing a third of the stars out of heaven. His main interest is to devour the child that is about to be born. So we have quite a terrifying image. A woman who's in the process of giving birth is not facing uh, a doctor and her husband and the, uh, uh, the nurses in the delivery room, she's facing a fearsome red dragon whose plan is to devour the child that she's about to give birth to. Well, this doesn't seem like a victory that can be won. How can a woman in the pains of childbirth give um, defense to her child against this evil, massive, powerful, scary dragon? Well, this picture is one that summarizes Israel's history again, right throughout the scriptures. Hope was about to arrive, but then it seems to be snuffed out. Israel is on the brink of extinction. Syria wipes out the northern kingdom. Queen Alethea uh, nearly wipes out the entire Davidic line. So the, and then in Jesus' own birth... Satan tries to destroy him through the acts of Herod, the king. 
who seeks to destroy all the young males of the same age as Christ. Satan has always been anti-God. And all always seems to almost fail in Israel's history. But it's in that very moment where Israel seems at its weakest, where all hope seems lost, that God's salvation breaks through, that light dawns in the darkness. And what's amazing about verse 5 is that she actually delivers. She has the child. This promise of God to his people is fulfilled. The promise of the seed is accomplished. And the dragon is unable to stop the birth of the Messiah. Now, the woman, we're told, gives birth to a male son. Now, that seems a bit redundant because the gender is implied by the noun that the son is is male. But a similar phrase is found in Isaiah 66, part of a prophecy that talks of Jerusalem being like a reborn child at the time that exile is ended, when God restores their fortunes, i.e. brings them, returns them back from exile. So what John is doing in his language here is that the promise that God made to Israel as a whole is now being applied to Jesus as the Christ child. He is the true Israel, and he is the one who, like the priest, represents the nations before God. He's the Davidic king who represents uh, the nation as their as their king. He's a child who, in God's determination, is going to bring about the rule of the world. He will shepherd the nations. And he will do that with a rod of iron. Now, in English, we have an idiom that means uh, kind of tyrannical and... Uh, Aggressive and, and, and so on. Th- that's not the idiom at play here in, in Greek and borrowing from the, the ideas in the Old Testament. Instead, what this is meant to point to is that this is the, the scepter that indicates kingship. It's what we expect from Psalm 2, that an offspring of David will rule with the royal scepter. And the point here is being cast that it doesn't matter that the dragon seems big and scary. God's plan is for this Messiah, King, to rule the world. And nothing is going to stop that plan. But just as he's born, and now the people are waiting to see what will he do on the earth, John says, he's snatched up, caught up, taken up to God and to his throne, meaning uh, Christ's throne. So why, has, why have we heard nothing about Christ's ministry on the earth? We have his birth, and then immediately we have his ascension. Well, the emphasis then is actually on those two aspects of Christ's ministry, his birth and his ascension. John's purpose in what he's done with this imagery and what he's seeing in the vision is that the promise of Messiah would be sent is fulfilled, A, and B, that this Messiah is going to uh, ascend and to take up his rightful place on the throne of David. 
Now, of course, John knows that Jesus had an earthly ministry, but the focus here is on the birth and reigning power of Christ after his earthly ministry. It's that aspect that is given as an encouragement to God's people. It's actually his resurrection and then ascension that takes the power of sin, which is death. He defeats the serpent, crushing his head, right, um, after his heel being bruised on the cross. But the emphasis is that when God raised him from the dead and received him into, into glory, that certifies that Jesus is, in fact, that true Davidic ruler that was awaited by Israel and that he is on the throne until he makes all his enemies his footstool. But now we go, we see things are not quite in, in, alpha, in, in chronological order, but that's how Revelation works. It's giving us scenes of what's happening in redemptive history. The order is not what's as important here. But it says that the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1,260 days. So this is actually, we can... We can see this as a uh, a more a purpose clause in which she is to be nourished. It's actually so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. But we got a lot of symbols here. What are we talking about? The wilderness, a place prepared by God, and nourishment, and a number of days, a great number of days. What's going on here? Well, the the wilderness, um, desert, is... In one sense, a scary place. It's for Christ going out into the wilderness is an image of curse, that he would be among the wild animals and uh, suffer. And as the true Israel should have done in the desert, obeyed. Um, So for Christ, that seemed to be an image of, of curse. But because of God's mercy for Israel, In the desert, it was also a place of mercy in the sense that he cared for them. He provided for them divinely with manna, and he appeared to them and led them through the wilderness as their covenant God. So this this is a place that God has prepared for her. Actually, the the way that place is used quite a bit in in Revelation uh, and elsewhere in the New Testament is a synonym for the temple. So God has prepared for her a place of fellowship and protection while she awaits the rulership of the son she's given born to and while she awaits for peace on the earth. So God has known that she will be in flight, but he has made provisions for the woman as she is in flight. Now, the wilderness is given as a a duration here of 1,260 days, which is three and a half years or 42 months. These are symbolic numbers used from Daniel and and here in Revelation multiple times. Uh, So this is a, a symbol, really, to represent the tribulation of God's people, those who are faithful to him at the hands of the enemies of God. So in essence, what John is seeing is that God is going to be present with his people 
providing for them and the place he's prepared for them in the midst of this tribulation. Now, the function of the three and a half years is to say it's, it's a specified time. It's not indefinite. God's not unsure of when Christ is going to return and establish his rule in the nations. It has a de- determined end. The point is something is still left to come. At the four-year mark, something will happen. Jesus will return to judge. And he will return to receive his people into the new creation. So what we should see in that is this is a reference to the church age. The tribulation occurs in the time between Christ's ascension, his taking up into heaven, and his return. And we are in that time. So this is an encouragement to us as we suffer and are persecuted for our faith. We are in a place that God prepared for us. We are not outside of God's plan when we suffer and are persecuted. We are not unable to withstand it because God has both purposed it and supplied everything that we need. As pilgrims in this age, as we await the end of this tribulation. And we can feel almost like it will never end. We can feel as if our lives are, almost everything is lost. That we are tempted beyond measure. That we are about to fall into the jaws of a dragon. We wonder if we can actually make it through this pilgrim journey. Our faith is gasping and on its last legs. And yet that is the shape of salvation. That God is magnified when he brings salvation among the weak. And just as he would not let uh, his plan fail for Israel, but instead brought about a Messiah, that that is a certification to you, a promise to you, a guarantee to you, That since he has delivered Christ and Christ has crushed the head of the serpent, that he will deliver you from your suffering in this present age, in this tribulation. That we as the woman of of the church essentially have our own kind of pangs of childbirth. What we are waiting for is not the first coming, the advent of the Messiah, but for his return. Where he will come as the shepherd ruler and rule the nations. And so, as we said, long story short, God's faithfulness throughout all the cycles of history proves to us God's faithfulness to us now as we await the completion of this last cycle, this tribulation. Now, the beast is killed, but he's killed through the killing of the child. But it's not the beast who does the killing of the child. It is, in fact, God himself, that God crucified Christ for our sins and raised him from the dead for our justification. And all of this is possible because the true king was born. God's plans cannot be undone. The mystery of God's response in all of this is that he brings forth 
uh, Christ right into seemingly the mouth of this rebellious um, serpent. But ultimately, God wins victory by Christ's apparent defeat on the cross. Christ's enemies saw the cross and they thought that they had won, that they had succeeded in crucifying their enemy and that they had the victory. But no, in fact, Christ was able to, uh, in, a, in his resurrection, mock death and his enemies. And that's why, as John sees in a later vision, the lamb was killed before the world was made. It was always God's plan to send Jesus to die for sins, to crush the head of the serpent, to behead all seven heads of the dragon. He is the one who was born for you. Your king, the dragon slayer, who has taken his rightful seat at God's right hand, the throne of David. And Jesus said to his disciples when he ascended to heaven, fear not, I am going to prepare a place for you. And so just as God has prepared a place for us now that we are in, um, in the, the, the breast and care of the church, that God nourishes us week to week, yet he has gone ahead. Jesus has gone ahead for you to prepare a place for you in the new creation. And when the birthing pains of this age of uh, being strangers and exiles in this world comes to an end, you will be welcomed into that place to rule and reign with Jesus in the new creation. What a hope we have as we await his return. Amen.